Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I am here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And then we have a very special guest today, uh, Roger Dooley, author of Brainfluence, and uh, he's he's a pretty famous keynote speaker. I would have to say, hello, Roger. Hey, Guthrie. So glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so, I, Susan, I don't. I, I guess I'll let you kick it off. I think you you have a more of more of a history with Roger than I do. Yeah, Roger. That, that sounds uh, ominous. <laughs> It does. We weren't going to talk uh, about our history, I didn't think. No, but, we weren't uh, going to. But, you know, these podcast hosts, you you know, they're just, that's just, they're, they're very manipulative. No, Roger and I, um, wow, let's see. We You interviewed me on your podcast a while ago, wasn't yeah. it? I don't yeah, even probably, know. probably do for another episode. Okay. Uh, that was years ago. And um, then we you put together a panel at South by Southwest that, um, we did along with uh, Natalie Nahai and Nir. Nirial, yes. Yeah, and that was, oh, that was a great panel. Was that like 2000? It was about three years ago, I think. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun panel. So that's kind of how um, Roger and I know each other, Guthrie, and and of course I, you know, follow his um, his blog and. Uh, which, okay, let's give the URL for the blog since I mentioned it. Go ahead, well, Roger. The best best place to find my blog is neuroscienceMarketing.com slash blog. Uh, and for generally all my the shortest path to my other stuff, my Forbes blog, entrepreneur blog, and so on would be uh, just start at RogerDooley.com and follow the links there. So um, can, I, can I lead off with a question? Sure. So, well, it's okay with me. He's the one that has to answer it. Hey, it's your show. <laughs> okay, so you sort of um, you you were ahead of the of the curve when it came to I mean neuroscience marketing, which is which is I mean that's obviously like like you just said the name of your blog. What how how what was it? What was the moment where you were like or the or what led you to be like this is going to be hot? Because you know I I know we we've gone to conferences you know for a bunch of years and. Five years ago, we'd go to a conference and, you know, Susan would be the only person talking about, you know, brain science, neuroscience, and people are like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And now every conference you go to, it's just, it's nothing but neuroscience and Kahneman and just, uh, just research, 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 research. Um, and your, your book came out, Roger, the Brainfluence book, I don't know. 2011. Yeah. 2011, it came out. Yeah. You were probably working on it even before that. Oh, so yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting question. What what got you to start thinking about this um, intersection between neuroscience and marketing? Well, okay, the, it dates all the way back to my college years. Uh, this was a, a really ancient history, but um, I was in engineering school, and uh, even though uh, it really had nothing to do with it, uh, I was pulled in a couple of directions. Uh, one was uh, psychology. I was a psychology minor, and I think I was the only engineering student that I knew that was minoring in psychology. Uh, and uh, uh, I also had this uh, interest in advertising, and that was completely inexplicable, but uh, when I was uh, supposed to be in the library studying differential equations and organic chemistry, instead uh, I'd be reading Advertising Age. And I really didn't uh, pursue those interests uh, after I graduated, um, but uh, eventually it started to come full circle. I uh, uh, 
had a basically a, a typical engineering career, worked my way into um, product management, which was more marketing than finally uh, senior strategy management. And when I was about 30, I was in charge of strategic planning for a Fortune 1000 company. And at that moment, uh, chose to bail out of the corporate world and become an entrepreneur and uh, started a direct marketing company. And we were selling, uh, using catalogs uh, in the very early home computer market. And this was really fun. It was a quantitative kind of marketing. Uh, and that really sort of enabled me to get back into the uh, advertising space uh, uh, and even do A-B testing and so on, which is pretty uh, crude by today's standards of A-B testing with the digital tools we have. But uh, then, you know, we actually had a pretty good idea of what was working. And uh, that evolved over time into a more digital business, uh, built uh, um, a really huge uh, college community, which uh, sold later to part of the Daily Mail group. Uh, but in about, uh, I guess, uh, 20, uh, let's see, when it was about probably 13, about 13 years ago or so, uh, I saw this sort of intersection of neuroscience and marketing. And uh, I was not the only person to see it. There were a few uh, small neuromarketing startups then uh, that were uh, trying to get clients and trying to trying to uh, uh, claimed with varying degrees of success that they could predict which ads would work and which ones wouldn't uh, uh, by using some kind of neuroscience tool, whether it was fMRI or EEG or some other kind of test. And uh, uh, so being a, a marketing guy, I said, oh, think I'll get a domain. And it was actually kind of interesting because at the time my uh, uh, daughter was a um, neuroscience major at Columbia and was decided to uh, eschew the academic route and go into marketing. So I thought, oh, yeah, this this could be interesting. Uh, you know, she, uh, she might want to do some writing here. But I started uh, writing. I really found it fascinating. Uh, the uh, And the more I got into it and the more I got feedback from my readers, I uh, found a, a couple things. First of all, that uh, there really was a lot happening in the space, although initially the credibility was uh, extremely low. Uh, most established academics and neuroscientists thought the idea of neuromarketing was just uh, a joke or a fraud or pseudoscience. Uh, and uh, there were almost uh, no academics uh, working in the space. Uh, I mean, there were some folks that were doing things like in decision science, uh, uh, Lowenstein at uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon and uh, Knutson at Stanford uh, were doing some really fascinating uh, studies on the pain of paying using fMRI. Uh, but, uh, you know, by and large, neuromarketing was uh, not a respected field. Uh, but uh, the other thing I found was uh, that uh, the uh, these tools really were available only to big brands. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, BMW or Coca-Cola uh, could go out and do uh, EEG studies uh, on panels of 25 or 50 people and uh, maybe get some answers about uh, their advertisements, you know, version A versus version B, which one was more engaging, uh, you know, what were the high points and the low points and, and so on. But um, there really wasn't uh, much available for the vast majority of marketers uh, who were either in smaller scale organizations or even in large organizations. Not every uh, problem uh, gets the budget of a Super Bowl ad. Uh, uh, many, many problems just have to be answered by gut feel uh, or something else or by experience, uh, not by uh, going out and running costly tests. Uh, so uh, I began to write uh, more and more about applying behavioral science 
clients to marketing problems too. And I found that um, my readers uh, tended to respond to uh, that kind of content a lot more. And just as, as you mentioned, Guthrie, talking about uh, uh, Kahneman and Cialdini and uh, a lot of the folks who were uh, really uh, the original scientists and authors in the space, uh, uh, there is a lot of interest in applying uh, that kind of knowledge uh, that to real-world problems, first of all, but that didn't require separate um, uh, testing using neuroscience tools. So I still have a, a soft spot for traditional neuromarketing. And the, and the good news there is that uh, it is getting more academic respect. Now, probably about uh, two or three years ago, probably going on three years ago, there was a big study at Temple University uh, that evaluated about five different uh, techniques for uh, measuring or for predicting ad success. Uh, they looked at fMRI, EEG, implicit testing, eye tracking, and I don't know if there may have been something else in there. Uh, and uh, what they found in those tests was that fMRI was uh, the uh, only one that predicted better than uh, just simply asking people uh, questions in a, in a survey. Uh, but uh, the critics of that study would say that they were, in fact, uh, fMRI experts. That's what they had in their lab were fMRI machines, and they only tried to duplicate best practices for the other techniques. So um, uh, the providers of those other techniques would say that they could get better results. But the key conclusion from that study was that, indeed, uh, the tools of neuroscience uh, – neurophysiological uh, measures and metrics uh, could predict ad success. And uh, that was from a respected research university uh, and uh, I forget what journal was published in, but in respected journal. So, uh, you know, that really, I think, uh, opened the door for uh, other universities to uh, explore the space. So I think we're, we're definitely seeing more work in the area. In Europe, there's a number of universities that have uh, master's programs. Uh, uh, I've uh, lectured at um, uh, Autonomous University in Barcelona, uh, Complutense University in Madrid, uh, where they have master's programs in neuromarketing. Uh, I, to my knowledge, there's not a U.S. university that does yet, but uh, there's uh, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, there's more academic respect now. So that that is a, sort of a long answer to the evolution of uh, both my interest in neuromarketing and maybe a little bit of the neuromarketing industry too. Yeah, it's. Um, I remember being at a um, a jazz music camp um, in the state of Washington. This is something I do. That's what I do when I go on vacation. Is I go play jazz and sing jazz um there was a guy there who is a, an actual neuroscientist you know like mm -hmm. he he does research on uh, primates and uh you know records the firings from particular neurons right and he just couldn't stand the entire you know to, as far as he was concerned it was all junk like there wasn't anything scientific about applying uh neuroscience to marketing so i was trying to have a conversation with him but it, i i have to say it probably didn't go real well i don't think well, it's, it's probably the industry's open. own fault susan you know i think that some of the early uh service providers made claims that were unsupportable uh and not based on really solid science uh, yeah. in other words you know they would pinpoint particular areas of the brain and say well this this you know says this about what the customers right. think and 
that th really there was not justification for those claims. And uh, uh, even uh, my friend Martin Lindstrom uh, got kind of pilloried where he wrote an article for the New York Times probably about six years ago uh, that compared um, the way people love their iPhone to romantic love and you know, citing some brain scan data. And that caused a huge uproar in the neuroscience community. Uh, like 50 eminent neuroscientists uh, co-signed a letter uh, oh uh, saying that uh, that's, that's and wrote, I had it published in the New York Times saying, uh, you know, that's ridiculous garbage. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was that was six years ago. And I think the mood has changed now. So when you when you you, know, you do a lot of speaking, public speaking, and, and we do also. What do you find is the uh, and and you're speaking to some fairly I it's I would think some fairly sophisticated audiences in terms of marketing. Do you think you know what what's the state of knowledge out there if uh, just among regular marketing people are they are they pretty up on uh, on neuromarketing are they uh, still at the uh, kind of overgeneralized statements. Um, uh, you know, do, well, do you do you find they're they're they really are learning a lot? Yeah, you know, I think uh, the awareness is growing uh, uh, pretty much every day. Uh, we're seeing uh, more uh, companies offer neuromarketing type services. I think we're seeing agencies now offering uh, both neuromarketing services as well as uh, having using uh, behavioral science. Uh, I just uh, uh, was speaking the other day to a person in charge of a behavioral science at Ogilvy, which is, I mean, in fact, something that I'm seeing, which is really a sort of a surprise. I was uh, just at a conference uh, late last year uh, in San Francisco and was put on, uh, organized by uh, Om Marwa, who's the head of behavioral science at Walmart and Sam's Club. And first of all, I've, I found it pretty amazing Although I, I'd known about, uh, I'd known him and known about him for a while uh, before that, uh, but that uh, Walmart would have a top behavioral science guy. I mean, just that, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, maybe uh, companies were not uh, thinking that way. Uh, and the way uh, companies are uh, using this skill is both externally for marketing purposes, but also internally. You know, they're trying to, you know, certainly uh, uh, Thaler and Sunstein's book Nudge uh, showed how simple interventions could change behavior, often for good. In other words, you can get people to be organ donors if you opt them in. They want to be organ donors, and this simply makes it happen in a more easy way. Uh, or uh, you can get people to sign up uh, for retirement plans if you opt them in. Uh, and very simple little interventions like this uh, can cause uh, really major good for companies and for society. So uh, these uh, behavioral uh, scientists now can solve both internal problems, uh, say for the human resources department uh, who are trying to um, uh, change behavior in positive ways, uh, uh, and also uh, on the marketing side of things where uh, they can uh, try and appeal to customers more effectively or develop more effective market research techniques. I, that, that's, that was, a, that was a, uh, a great way of phrasing that. That was, that was, uh, that was a good spin. So Guthrie, uh, as a behavioral, Guthrie, uh, Roger, Guthrie's um, 
we, we go back and forth a lot uh, uh, with me being the, um, you know, I call myself a behavioral scientist. He would call me a behavioral psychologist and himself a behavioral economist. And he actually just put out a, a video uh, in which he kind of walks through what, what he thinks sees are the differences between them. But Guthrie, it sounds like, uh, you know, you're, your your field behavioral economics um i might have to make sure i don't lose you to a company who wants to hire you as an internal i always behavioral yeah, you economist know, it's so interesting because the behavioral eco- um economist papers it they, your your behavioral psychologist stuff it seems to gravitate towards more um design ux stuff and the uh, behavioral economics stuff tends to gravitate more towards marketing uh, market research which i find interesting um yeah, I have a, I mean, I, I'm not going to ever, ever, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I have, I have, uh, I, I cock my head sideways and kind of question, uh, Richard Thaler and his nudge principle because it all starts out with good, but I mean, I, so like I watch ads now cause we've, we've done, I mean, we've done work with plenty of ad companies and so I'm sitting there watching ads and they're doing all kinds of really, really great behavioral science stuff to like get attention, and yeah. I'm like, oh, like, like, like it's, it's, it's. I feel, I feel almost like, um, uh, uh like Oppenheimer watching the the explosion of the, the atomic <laughs> warhead and being like, what, like, you know, like, well, what have we unleashed? You know, we were right. Just... <laughs> well, no, I think that's that's a, a valid concern, and yeah. uh, you know, if you. Um... Uh, listen to Robert Cialdini speak. Sure. Uh, he'll he'll use the word ethical uh, about a hundred times in his speech, <laughs> right. uh, emphasizing that uh, you know, like any tool, you can use it for good or bad. And uh, the uh, another we mentioned uh, Nir Eyal a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, his book Hooked basically decodes how uh, Instagram and Facebook and other fairly addictive apps hook you. Uh, and it, uh, he uh, sort of teased out the model, and it's uh, uh, definitely got some ties into uh, uh, dopamine reward system. It uh, uh, and some companies manipulate you very effectively, whether they're online games or uh, social sites like the ones I just mentioned. Uh, and again, uh, you, whenever you hear uh, Near speak, uh, he always <laughs> emphasizes that. Uh, uh, yes, these tools exist, but uh, you want to use them for good. But of course, uh, like uh, uh, any other field, uh, not everybody does. You know, uh, then it's probably the most common question I get asked is if I uh, do a speech and talk about uh, different uh, uh, sort of brain-based or behavior-based techniques uh, that you can use to improve your marketing, to convert more people on your website or sell more stuff or whatever. Uh, people say, well, you know, is this ethical? At what point does it become a manipulation rather than uh, good persuasion? And that's also and, Susan's most commonly asked question as well. Well, yeah. I, I, I'd like to hear Susan's answer, but I'll give you uh, my answer uh, first. And I, I go back to uh, Zig Ziglar, who uh, is probably the most famous salesperson and sales trainer of all time. Uh, and he wrote uh, uh, I don't, a dozen or more books on sales, including at least one that was like 20 ways to close a uh, sale. Now, they certainly sound uh, manipulative, like, you know, the presumptive close, like, oh, would you like this delivered Tuesday or Wednesday, sir? Uh, or, uh, well, shall I write you up for the red one or the green one? 
you know, and a whole variety of techniques that were designed to get people from that moment of indecision to agreeing to buy the product. Uh, and uh, he had a couple of statements. So one, one that probably goes even maybe a little bit farther than I might go, but uh, he did say that uh, uh, if you really believe in your product, uh, that it is good for its purpose and for the customer, uh, then it's your ethical obligation to sell it. Uh, now, uh, that that may go a little bit far for uh, uh, me and for perhaps uh, for you folks too, but uh, he also said that your most important tool of persuasion is your own integrity. And by that, I think he meant if you are uh, closing a sale to get a customer to a better place, if they'll be happy with their purchase, if they won't regret the purchase 24 hours later or a week later, uh, and the product will actually do uh, what they expect it to do for them or the service will, then uh, helping them uh, conclude the deal uh, with s some more, say, advanced persuasion techniques like the ones that uh, he described uh, is fine. Uh, you know, because otherwise uh, they may not get to that better place uh, in their life. So, uh, you know, that's uh, really the way I look at it. If, if you're helping the customer get to a better place, uh, then it's okay. If you are convincing them to do something that they will regret, they'll be unhappy with, uh, then no, it's unethical. But when you think about it, uh, just about every tool that marketers have can be used or abused. I mean, mm -hmm. you can uh, have an ad that has truthful content, uh, or you can have an ad that uh, is deceptive. Maybe it uh, actually has falsehoods in it. Maybe it leaves out important information that the customer uh, would want to know. Uh, but uh, you know, by and large, most advertisers take the high road uh, and advertise honestly. And I think uh, the techniques that we all talk about, uh, we have to use the same way. I I, I like that. Uh, we we've had we we ask this question to a lot of different people who come on here, but they're mostly not marketers; they're mostly designers. Um, and their answer is very product based or very from the side of the uh, of the company like it's the company's obligation mm -hmm. um, but I, I like I like the approach you just said which is really from the consumers which is from the consumers perspective um, and it, it doesn't have to do with the company so yeah and when, when you get into um, user experience issues and uh, design issues uh, there's there's often a fine line there and uh, you've probably seen some of the dark patterns uh, discussions uh, where, uh, you know, having a user interface that is uh, easy and guides people into the desired behavior uh, is good up to a point. It's it's uh, desirable. I mean, and certainly you've all had uh, user experiences uh, that uh, are horrible that we can't even figure out how to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. <laughs> but uh, then you can go too far where um, you uh, induce people to... Uh, click on things or do things uh, or opt into things uh, that they wouldn't if they were aware of what they were doing. But uh, when you've got a, uh, you know, a giant green continue button that opts you into something uh, bad, like uh, uh, delivering all your email contacts to LinkedIn or something, uh, and then there's a, like a little tiny gray, no thanks mm. uh, to text uh, uh, if you don't want to do that, you know, uh, that's clearly crossing the boundary into manipulation where, you know, you're not giving the consumer an informed choice. And uh, uh, LinkedIn was famous for that. They've they've toned it down a little bit, but uh, they still have some really weird things. Like, for instance, when um, they, for some reason, LinkedIn 
wants you to connect with other people, even though their instructions have always said, only connect with people you know. And that, they, you know, they, that, that's, those are the words they say. But if you look at their user interface, uh, it is the opposite. Uh, it uh, invites you to connect with people uh, that you don't know. If you get a request from somebody uh, and look at their profile uh, to see, gee, I don't know this person. I don't even know why they'd want to connect with me. You look at their profile, uh, there's a big button that says accept, but uh, there's not a an ignore or delete invitation button that's visible. You know, you have to hunt around for that. Uh, and, you know, so they, they clearly want to uh, foster connections. And they do that a whole bunch of ways. I, I, the example I gave a few minutes ago of uh, more or less tricking you into uh, giving up your email list um, or your, your Gmail contacts or Yahoo mail contacts uh, is a real example. I, I don't know if they're still doing that, but uh, for a while after you connect with somebody, uh, there would be a yeah, like a big button that, that said continue, uh, and what you were really uh, doing is saying, "Hey, um, uh, sure, you can have all my email contacts." I I as far as I remember, I mean, I think things changed a little bit after Microsoft bought them, right? That was right. Your, yeah, your, I, they they do seem to have toned uh, toned it down a little. Um, yeah, though though Microsoft uh, has its own uh, history of of forcing opt-ins that. Uh, be it Internet Explorer. Yeah, or, they uh, still do. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> or, or, uh, though some of them, um, at least, like when they when they're trying to make everyone update their computer, and they kind of put at least at least there's like a good security justification. Yeah, the Internet Explorer one though. Yeah. Is, yeah. It gets to be a bit much. All right, uh, Susan, we we didn't get your thoughts about the uh, the ethical uh, question, which which I know we've we've talked about before, but I I wanted to let you respond if you had any i don't know that i have any okay. you know more newer insights than i've had before which which have always been uh uh beleaguered and and confused i mean I, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest i mean i think it's i i think it's a really huge question and i don't uh, you know guthrie you and i have talked about i mean you've even come up with some interesting quantitative yeah. ways to 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 measure ethical impact, but mm -hmm. um, you know it's a big question, but it's one that's been around forever. I mean, even though, even if you look at the field of advertising, you know, advertising's been been doing various things to try and manipulate people to uh, or persuade people. I I remember being, God, seventh grade, tenth grade, so, somewhere young in school, and we were learning. We were in social studies, I think, something like that. And there was a section that we were doing, like an advertising section. And then yeah. we had, there was a whole discussion where uh, I believe it was Coke. They had a, there was a famous poster where it was, you know, big, the classic glass Coke bottle. But the bubbles, if you look closely, actually were in like the shape of like attractive women. But, but, <laughs> but, but if you were like zoomed out, you like, you, you wouldn't be able to notice. But if you, but if you actually looked at it. So like it was like this like uh, the subliminal. subliminal. Yeah. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I buy that. There was there was a, a guy, an author a while back who wrote uh, a book I think fake? subliminal seduction or something like that, and there was some follow-on books that were full of these things that only he could see. So I'm like, look at that ice cream. But don't don't you see uh, you know the naked woman in there or the uh, you know the dead person or whatever? And like you'd look at it and say, ah oh, no. <laughs> 
you, you had to have uh, special vision to uh, see what he was seeing. Mm. No, I, mm. I'm just talking more about just, you know, the, just just the whole idea of messaging about, you know, going back to the 50s and the 60s and um, how how any product has been marketed. I mean, I think I think I mean, and Roger, I'd, I'd be interested to know if you if you think this is true or not. I mean, my impression has been that a lot of the things that the advertising world ha, has been doing for decades um, worked and and a lot of them worked because there were neuroscience principles behind them at the time you know they didn't even necessarily know that they just kind of knew what worked and and what didn't work and they did what worked and um so i to in my mind you know these the 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 uh applying principles of neuroscience to marketing let's say um is not necessarily new. It's just that now uh, we understand why some stuff works and why some stuff doesn't. Oh, I, I think that's th that's a story of science in general, where people have made observations yeah. about the world for a long time, uh, and only it's later on that we understand the uh, uh, the science that causes that phenomenon. But yeah, I think uh, advertisers going all the way back to the uh, early twentieth century were. Uh, in some cases, uh, pretty good students of human behavior and psychology, uh, even uh, though psychology was, uh, you know, not all that advanced then. You had Freud and some of his ideas, which aren't necessarily too well accepted today. Uh, but, you know, you had these uh, uh, campaigns uh, uh, like the uh, one for Lucky Strike that made uh, uh, cigarette smoking by women acceptable by packaging it uh, as a sign of independence, uh, you know, as opposed right. to a... Uh, uh, a habit that was really mainly for uh, uh, guys and, and it wasn't suitable, uh, uh, you know, for women. Uh, so, you know, th this stuff has existed existed for years. And if you read Ogilvy, you know, a lot of his ideas uh, are totally relevant today because uh, uh, he understood behavior, even though uh, he wasn't necessarily um, uh, you know, using the language of modern behavioral science. Uh, you know, he, he really got it. And that's that's one reason, you know, one of the questions that I was asked, particularly uh, in the earlier days of neuromarketing, a little bit less so now, is that, well, you know, aren't uh, advertisers now with these tools going to be create going to create ads uh, that are so powerful uh, that, you know, they'll just overwhelm consumer defenses. And what uh, what I the way I answered that uh, was uh, no, because if it was possible to create ads like that, they would already exist. You know, there've been enough smart advertisers doing enough uh, advertising that uh, they would have stumbled across it by design or by accident. Uh, and so, really, what uh, what I see the power of uh, neuromarketing tools is is not to create ads that are incredibly persuasive and powerful, uh, but rather to screen out uh, you know many of the really bad ads uh, that are annoying and ineffective, which. Uh, numbers show uh, are the majority of ads. Uh, there was one study, I uh, forget who did this study, but uh, for brand advertising, and there were only about 20% of the ads that actually improved brand perception. Uh, there were uh, like another 20% uh, that 
didn't do anything to harm it. And then there, there's a bunch that uh, actually um, caused the brand to decline in its perception. I, maybe maybe it wasn't you know, more than half, but the, the statistics were really uh, impressive that there was only a small portion of the aver- of advertising that actually worked. Uh, and undoubtedly, some portion of it was uh, not only ineffective, but harmful to the brand. You know, and if you could get rid of that stuff that hurts the brand, that annoys the consumer, uh, that they, t- you know, when it comes on, they switch the channel. Uh, you know, that is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's perhaps the greatest benefit of neuromarketing. Yeah. Well, so t- two quick thoughts uh, on that point. I mean, because the first is, is that you look at like, there it, there's a subset of population who does not want these big companies like a Google, you know, to have all this information and so they can market specifically to you, right? So you're watching a YouTube video and there's, on the flip side though, there is an argument to be made that what if I, I like watching cats and I like watching uh, stuff about cats and I like things in a certain way. And so if there's an ad that's pleasant and has cats in it, that I'm going to be like, oh, what a great ad. And so it's like a mutual beneficial thing that, that I can right. watch ads that I want, but also they can target me. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think uh, that's a real benefit. I would much rather see ads that were related to something that I'm interested in uh, rather than, you know, totally irrelevant ads. And so, I, you know, I think in general that part is a benefit uh, now to, you know, if they carry it um, too far by sort of micro-targeting you, uh, there was the uh, flap. Uh, a few years ago when Target uh, found that by measuring, by uh, using this big data analysis uh, project, uh, they found that there were certain groups of products that uh, newly pregnant women tended to buy. Uh, And there were not obvious things that would relate to being pregnant, but there were things like lotion, I forget what the other ones were. Uh, And uh, so they said, oh, this is brilliant. and they found it was very uh, predictable and repeatable. So they um, did this analysis. They created a flyer of uh, products for uh, newly pregnant women and sent it out and caused this immediate flap when people were uh, getting these at home and, hey, why'd you send my daughter one of these? Uh, you know, she's 16 and uh, where she had not told her family that she was pregnant. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, that is at the point where it's crossing a line into um, – uh, you know, invasion of privacy or are just really uh, uh, too, too, a little bit too creepy uh, for words. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's um, uh, it's up to the market to try and draw that line and get relevant ads. And even even now the retargeting, I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience where you're shopping for a suitcase, yeah. you buy a suitcase, and then for the next month, all you see are suitcase ads, even <laughs> though you've, you've got your suitcase. You know, that, that, that can get to uh, the annoying point, too. But eventually, uh, they'll be smart enough. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, once Amazon controls all e-commerce, uh, they'll know that uh, you bought the suitcase, <laughs> and they won't bother you Great. with suitcase ads for a while. Or maybe they'll just bother you with a complimentary ads. Hey, we see you bought a rollerboard. Perhaps you'd like the full-size suitcase, too, or the, <laughs> the purse. I, I, for one, accept our robot amazon overlords so that's <laughs> yeah i mean they um uh they have been pretty good about uh building consumer trust yeah. i mean they've obviously got a lot yeah. of data uh but they've used it in a uh, i think a wise and effective mm-hmm. way so far uh and they're you know a very trust and respected brand yeah when in, in texas uh well i had my own little a b test here where 
Um, I was a, a pretty regular Amazon customer, but then a few years ago, uh, they uh, negotiated a deal with Texas where they would char start charging Texas uh, sales tax and remitting that to the state. Uh, and Texas would, um, uh, they help them build some warehouses and train people and whatnot. So it was sort of a win-win for everybody except for the consumer who uh, now had an 8% higher bill. Uh, and what I found was my buying behavior did not change significantly because of that. Even though they suddenly had this basically an 8% price increase, uh, my uh, behavior was not all that affected because of uh, my trust in uh, them. Uh, and, you know, they say, hey, uh, our prices are fair, and they almost always are fair. Uh, we will have it to you on Tuesday. And when they tell you that, they'll have it to you on Tuesday. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, so to me, they've, they've done a great job of building their brand. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so that was the, the other question I had for you before I, um, I, I forget it. Which is so we're we're gonna we're gonna take a step a step back. I agree that there's not an ad that's so effective because I, I I think that's good reasoning that advertising would have found it already. But I do think they're not necessarily a successful ad, but there are um, new ways to grab attention that I think can um, overwhelm people's uh, defenses. To, to a pretty large extent that is becoming more and more popular. So there's always so, been, well, you know, like so, so, you know, you can think of ads in the past. They used to have stuff where, you know, the graphic like pops on the screen, right? And that, you know, I think for most people, especially, you know, kids my age, it, that's kind of worn off and that doesn't really do a whole lot for us. But um, there are a couple ads. Uh, I, I have, I have, I have two, two specific examples. I was watching um, an ad, I believe for a car commercial and at the end of the car commercial, I think it was a car commercial. Maybe it was a tire commercial. It doesn't really matter. Um, so they're driving up to a, like a drive through window. And all of a sudden, uh, this thing uh, like pops out and makes like a loud noise. Like it's like a it's like a it's like a character at like a haunted house, for example. Mm. And it goes like, boo. Right. It's like loud and scary. And then they're like, and then the guy, the other, the guy from the ad like pops out, like, haha, got you. And everyone laughs like, oh, you got me. Like, what a funny joke. Right. And it was some celebrity, right. They were like playing a prank on each other. But what they were really doing was having a moment where all of a sudden something like it was, it was a jump scare in an ad. And then they played it off as, oh, it's like, you know, you're just as playing a joke a prank. on the celebrity. Yeah. And so it wasn't like a scary ad. So, but, but like, that's essentially what they were doing. Um, and, and like, there's no, you know, I, I'm very susceptible to horror movies because I'm a little scaredy cat. So, like, like it always grabbed my attention. Um, so that's one. And then the second is, you know, uh, a lot of ads, they put um, buzz, it, the buzz or rings of a cell phone in the ad itself um, as if you were getting uh, uh, a text message. And, and, of course, you know, me being totally trained, right? I, I look up and I... And I got to feel your pocket, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, but, and, yeah. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about it. So, so um, those are those are d two pretty specific examples where, uh, you know, they're they're really they're really grabbing attention, um, in in a in a pretty significant way. And even though, again, maybe it doesn't affect the brand, it it it's it overwhelms me as a human's, at the least at the moment, uh, mm -hmm. like defenses to ignore it. Well, well, yeah, and, you know, I think it's causing those... you to have a particular 
I mean, in the case of the pop-up and the scare, I mean, that's going to, you know, you're going to have a, a, a release of uh, uh, right. stress hormones and, and, you know, they're doing that because they know that it, when you're in a high arousal state, your memory will be impacted and so on. So yeah, and I remember the ad. So like it clearly works. Right. 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 But if it annoyed you, you might remember it in a negative context, too. You might think, oh, I hate that ad. It scares me every time. Uh, and you know, I think that's that's the danger with using these techniques. Like if uh, oh, I haven't seen, uh, seen them lately, probably because I'm watching less commercial TV. But uh, uh, there were for years these uh, what I called mattress screamer ads where there's a, a guy selling mattresses. And basically uh, he would be screaming at you uh, in the ad of uh, the uh, they would record it at the highest sound level allowable by the stations. Uh, and they were just so annoying that you literally would grab the remote and either change the channel or mute it. Uh, uh, and clearly those ads got your attention. Uh, you know, you couldn't be sitting there, uh, uh, you know, quietly watching TV without suddenly noticing this guy screaming at you. Uh, but I always question their effectiveness. You know, do people actually say, wow, that's a place where I'd like to buy a mattress or uh, saying, God, I, you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go there if it was the last mattress store on earth. <laughs> I it's true and it's a it's a good question and I, I I mean that the the volume thing does happen a lot especially um it's hard to do on network TV but I've noted but a lot of uh online advertisements uh where where there's like like Hulu um used to do this and maybe they still do where some ads would just be insanely loud like where where you yeah you'd have to like go up and adjust your volume um but I don't know. I mean, uh, I think I think there's a world in which, uh, in a in a world in which the commodity seems to be attention, on apps, where or you know, whenever you sign up for a product, you're instantly subscribed to a mailing list, and there's all kinds of push notifications that basically, whenever you sign up or download an app, you have to go through and turn off the notifications every single time. Um, because the commodity of of business success is attention, and it, it you know may, maybe it's a race it's a race to the bottom, and uh, they find uh, some effectiveness there. Maybe not. I, I well, don't know. Well, yeah, and I, I think there in some in some um, business arenas, uh, you know, for for many companies the brand is really important and so they care a lot about this some of the, what you've been talking about Roger you know not hurting the brand but there are some situations where you know the brand is designed to be short lived uh they don't you know th this app this product this whatever is not going to be around for a long time and it's going to either disappear or be subsumed into another brand so they care more about that uh, the attention short and short-term gain of what they're trying to do than they do about you know the caring in the long term about the brand. Mm -hmm. Well, every every advertiser is different has different motivations, uh, but uh, you know I think most businesses are looking at the long term, and uh, that really forces them to engage in mostly ethical behavior, uh, because particularly in today's uh, social media-driven uh, society, uh, you cannot get away with much as a brand. You know, there were, there were times when you could sell a product uh, that wasn't particularly good, uh, and, you know, people wouldn't know about it, at least not for a long time, until they experienced it themselves. 
Uh, now, if you sell a bad product, the whole world's going to know about it within 24 hours. Yeah, you know, I was just at, um, I agree with you. However, I, 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 I saw an interesting talk at the, um, a conference uh, at the end of 2017 that I was speaking at, which is the uh, Belgium, um, Av- Belgium Association of Marketing Conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a speaker there from the UK who gave a talk, and he had actual data. Uh, and he said that, uh, and he showed us, he was showing us the data. There's a lot of misconceptions about how, whether some of the social media uh, brand issues actually do long term harm to a brand. Um, so he used, for example, uh, you know, the whole United Airlines, which has, you know, had some incidents, right? Mm-hmm, right. And that went viral and, uh, you know, YouTube videos and they, they were real incidents. And and um, he compared. So he had a couple of examples like this where he compared the incident and the the virility virality, whatever you want to call it, on on social media that was negative impact. But then he compared that to revenue and stock price over the next, you know, year. And even uh, he even compared the rev the the stock price uh, the next day. And you know, it was interesting because you saw you know, it's like it didn't have an impact. It didn't have an impact on the stock. It had a like a, a an impact of a couple of hours on the stock price, and then the stock price that by the next day was you know higher than it was before and continued to go up throughout the year. And the revenue for the company had no impact. And so it it's I think it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm, and well, you know, you know, believe I, me, I, I believe in branding a lot and I know the brands care about their, their impression, but then one, one wonders, you know, in the long term whether that will, will have the modifying effect on, uh, you know, ethical marketing decisions, um, that it seems to be having right now. If these, if these other, you know, if these incidents don't, don't affect, you know, the bottom line in the long term. Well, you know, I think there's uh, different kinds of incidents and failures too. I'm uh, United is a good example. I am a, a loyal United customer. Yeah. Uh, you'd have to drag me off kicking and screaming uh, to get me off United. We, plane, we also uh, fly United as a business. Right. Uh, so United uh, sponsor but, this podcast. <laughs> Um, the, uh, but, uh, the reason I'm loyal is not because I'm loyal to Amazon because our service is great. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're predictable. They're, uh, uh, basically everything about their service, uh, is top notch, uh, United, uh, I'm loyal because they treat me really well because I'm an elite flyer. Uh, and, uh, I, if I go to American, they put me in a middle seat in the back row, uh, and United, uh, you know, I can get my choice of seats and maybe get uh, bumped up to first class, even if I pay for an economy ticket, if I'm lucky. Um, the uh, So there, there's different kinds of loyalty. But, you know, I think when people see uh, uh, the picture of that guy getting dragged off the plane, uh, they can uh, apply that to their own experience with the brand. Like, I've never seen an incident like that on any airplane, uh, on, you know, if any airline. Uh, and uh, this person was... Uh, you know, clearly 
interested in making some kind of a, an incident or a statement. Uh, and the perpetrators uh, were not the airline. They were police, uh, uh, airport police, uh, who are probably not the most trained folks in the world. And, you know, so I think that you could say, well, boy, that really uh, was pretty awful. But, uh, you know, it didn't really affect what I thought my next United flight would be like. I didn't expect uh, to get, uh, you know, beaten up. Uh, you know, on the other hand, some things like uh, the, and I, I don't know about the data on this. I haven't seen the data on, let's say, Wells Fargo uh, market share and mm -hmm. profitability and so on. But when there was a sort of massive uh, endemic fraud going on there that uh, uh, was pervasive across apparently the entire country and most branches where they were creating these fake accounts uh, to make their sales goals and signing people up for stuff they didn't sign up for. Uh, to me, that is potentially a more damaging kind of uh, exposure that might have been swept under the rug a little bit before. You know, might might have been written about in the Wall Street Journal, get a few articles in newspapers, but uh, you know, undoubtedly, I got exposed to many more people because just because of both the uh, internet news cycle and uh, uh, amplified by social media. Yeah. So, 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 you know, Roger, we want you to do the neuromarketing study, in which we look at the neuromarketing um, evidence. Uh, of this difference between, you know, an initial reaction to a public social media things going viral event uh, versus the personal uh, sustained experience of the brand. Um, I, it'd be interesting to see, you know, from a, a neuroscience reaction, you know, what's, what's, go what's going on in your brain when you see the, you know, video of the United uh, situation, if indeed you are actually a United fan, right, or at mm -hmm. least at least very comfortable with the United brand, um, versus if you see something like that for a brand that you don't have a relationship with, you know, is there are you processing and filtering that that differently uh, in your brain because of a positive brand experience that well it's, it's almost certainly true because of the, F, the fmri work uh, done uh, by reed montague years ago with the sort of replay of the pepsi challenge in an fmri machine where uh, uh, his data showed that uh, people uh, were more influenced by the brand than by the taste of the product whatever they thought was coke mm. whether it was coke or pepsi uh, tasted better uh, mm -hmm. to their brains basically uh, it was, um, uh, so, you know, I think that a positive brand association certainly does change the way you process new information. And I think the other thing, the social media cycle effects too, are, are new products. Uh, so if you have a brand new product that nobody's experienced yet, and initially uh, a lot of the reports are bad, uh, you get uh, some, uh, bad reviews. And then these are again, amplified by social media and people have some horror stories, uh, uh, about their use of the product. I think that's where it can be really damaging. Uh, a really well-established brand uh, probably won't be hurt that much by an incident that involves their regular product. You know, you could have something mm -hmm. bad happen, uh, you know, where a, uh, a Coke truck uh, ran over uh, 10 people or something, and people say, ah, that's horrible, but uh, most folks aren't going to stop drinking Coca-Cola because of it. You know, on the other hand, if uh, Coca-Cola introduced a new product uh, and it was found to be harmful or people just really hated the taste and talked about it, uh, that could really kill the launch.
Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to change um, topics here. Uh, before we we started the the podcast recording, you mentioned that you are working on a new book. So, are, are, do we get any hints? Well, yeah, I can I can talk about it a little bit. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, going to be uh, uh, my contract is with McGraw Hill, and uh, the uh, topic is an outgrowth. I a few years ago I developed a little framework for persuasion. I call it the persuasion slide, and it's uh, has some roots in the work of B.J. Fogg at Stanford, uh, where uh, you have to have. Uh, he says you have to have a motivation to do something. You have to have the ability to do it and then a trigger to initiate it. And if uh, you have those three things in the right combination, you can change that behavior. And that behavior change could be uh, placing an order uh, on a website. It could be uh, flossing your teeth uh, every evening or whatever. But uh, my... uh, I found that model just a little bit uh, confusing and hard to explain uh, to people. And also I wanted to tease out the difference between uh, conscious and non-conscious factors, because to Mm -hmm. me, everything uh, in marketing, you have to look at it from both standpoints. People do need rational information at times. If you're buying a technical product, uh, you know, if uh, I just bought a uh, shower head on Amazon, shower head assembly, uh, that I needed technical information to know if it was going to fit. I had to know what the ceiling clearance was. I had to know uh, what the distance and what the height of the thing was so it didn't interfere with the control and so on. Uh, you know, I definitely needed that boring, rational, logical information. Uh, but uh, you also uh, have to have those uh, emotional drivers or non-conscious drivers uh, that are all, all the things that uh, you and I write about uh, in marketing. So I, I wanted to cover both of those bases. And I, so I developed this little model called the uh, persuasion slide. And if anybody's interested, they can just Google that and they'll find probably uh, uh, my blog post and uh, a book. I've got an, uh, just a Kindle book at Amazon on the topic. Uh, but one of the elements in the slide uh, is friction. It's what prevents uh the behavior from happening. When the little kid gets on the slide, he gets nudged at the top, he's sliding down it uh, uh, and then gets stuck in the middle uh, because their slide is rusty. That's friction. And uh, that's what happens to people when uh, they abandon their merchandise uh, on an e-commerce site in, in their shopping cart. You know, you think about all the money that's wasted in uh, SEO and content marketing, web design, uh, pay-per-click ads that gets people to e-commerce websites uh, and gets them to shop around to put the product in their cart. Uh, but then people get uh, to the checkout process and find it confusing or difficult uh, or just it's much easier to do something else. Uh, and, you know, last year, uh, e-commerce sales were uh, $2 trillion almost. It's $1.9 some trillion dollars. Huge number. But the amount of merchandise left in abandoned e-commerce shopping carts was $4.6 trillion. Uh, that is a huge amount of waste. And not all of it is because of checkout difficulty or other issues, confusion. Sometimes people have to put stuff in there to see what the shipping is or for the, you know, they're saving it for the future or something. But a huge amount of that is because just people could not get across the finish line uh, because there was some element of difficulty there. And so uh, that is the topic for my book. And I, I really try and relate it uh, to uh, beyond the sort of simple uh, conversion and persuasion processes we use as marketers, but also to look at, uh, for instance, uh, why uh, some areas uh, 
uh, are more successful? Why did Silicon Valley succeed uh, when Boston arguably had a more robust tech culture uh, in the early days of tech? Uh, why did they uh, not turn into Silicon Valley and the huge success it is today? Uh, why did India uh, fail? Uh, the, 30 years ago, India's economy was bigger than China's. Today, China's is eight times the size of India's. Uh, and I would argue that a big part of that uh, is uh, for years, particularly in the 90s, uh, India's totally Kafkaesque bureaucracy that made it impossible for uh, both entrepreneurs to get stuff done and for uh, international companies to operate there. Uh, so uh, to me, that's this all relates to friction and difficulty uh, in doing things. So that's, that's going to be the topic of the book. All right. Now see, this is cause you're an engineer. It so is. you're going to write it. Yeah. Cause well, friction we, is uh, a, <laughs> I, I think uh, the science of what friction is. Yeah. And you know, it has an uh, analog in the physical world, of course, cause that's where the term comes from. Uh, uh, but you know, uh, for, uh, hundreds or thousands of years, uh, friction was around, but it was invisible to people. They didn't really mm. see it as a force. Uh, believe it or not, the first person to see it uh, was Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, and he conducted uh, some experiments in friction that look a lot like some of uh, the ones the early physicists use uh, involving uh, weights and uh, surfaces uh, rolling, rubbing against each other. And he actually developed uh, some numbers for a coefficient of friction, which is something that uh, a modern physics understands pretty well. Oh, that's uh, great. But then, then his work that. was lost for, uh, I don't know, 80 or 100 years or more. Wow. It was only, only discovered much later uh, after other scientists had also investigated the topic. And, and the reason is, uh, in some ways like gravity, it's invisible. It's, it's there. It affects things, but you can't really see it. And as a result, it took a long time to discover. Well, that's interesting. I like that. I like that, uh, analogy or metaphor, because I think that in terms of, you know, if you think about design, right. Um, and interaction design and user experience design, I think, uh, Sometimes it's hard to get um, companies and teams and product owners to uh, understand that they need to um, uh, change a design or worry about a design or measure a design uh, f for these problems because, like friction, right? It doesn't. It's not. You you don't see it. You don't see, and you may not even be measuring it, right? You might be measuring how many people, um, as you said, come to the product page, how many people check out. And I know people measure abandonment, but um, I don't know that but they pay yeah, it's, attention it's to, to that to as that much. Next level. Yeah, and it's not just abandoned. It's like, why abandon? Right? I think right. one of the one of the interesting questions in in user experience that that you know one of the things I talk to clients a lot about is is okay you may you you know what happened but you don't know why it happened and if you don't know understand why it's happening then whatever fix you apply it could be way off. Because right. Yeah. If you're, if you're just guessing, you're fixing uh, the, the wrong gee, problem. People, don't seem to get to this next step here. Well, let's make the button bigger. That's right. Uh, you know, the size of the button may not be the problem. It may be something else entirely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, and I like, I really like that idea. Of, you know, the the pro the problem being potentially something that everyone is forgetting to to look at and forgetting to measure. You know, because it's invisible. So that sounds like a, a 
it's going to be a great book. What what's your uh, do you do you have a uh, I, I don't know uh, what the publication date will be. I'm uh, delivering the manuscript a little bit later this year, and uh, then we'll yeah. see how long it takes to get through so the maybe uh, process. maybe like early 2019? That's what I would expect, yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. So, all right, one other question. When you're giving, you always give a lot of talks, right? Do a lot of public speaking. I do. Um, what are some of your, do you have an upcoming talk or something you, you know about already for 2018? Oh, well, yeah, I've got a few lined up. I'll be in Orlando in just uh, less than a couple of weeks now for um, a socialmedia.org event. Oh, that's a private event. People can't uh, uh, sign up for that. And then uh, just uh, I've got a, a gig in Baltimore for an uh, education conference, inter interestingly enough, a little bit later, uh, doing a uh, lecture at University of Chicago coming up uh, in uh, just about uh, three weeks. So, and then a uh, either a keynote or a workshop in uh, Milan, Italy, uh, a little bit later in spring, and probably a few others in there too. Uh, but uh, it keeps me busy and uh, helps pay the bills. So, do you have a do you have a favorite new topic that talk that you're putting together that that you haven't done before? Uh, you know, my content is constantly evolving. I've uh, keep trying to update it and bring in the latest stuff. Uh, so rather than uh, my my, my uh, talks, I guess are kind of like Amazon's web pages. You never you never uh, perceive that it looks totally different. <laughs> uh, but if you compared it to uh, a page from ten years ago, you'd see it a whole lot of totally changes. Yeah. And uh, uh, so it's um, uh, the the things that I like to um, uh, get into though are less obvious topics. I mean, a lot of my talks have to do with um, basically conversion and how to sell more stuff. Uh, but, you know, I think it's uh, fun, too, to talk about how you can help accomplish uh, change in organizations, uh, how you can uh, use some of these tools uh, for very uh, positive, uh, you know, social and, and business reasons. Mm. One, of, one of Guthrie's favorite topics, too, change in the organization. <laughs> Hey, Roger, thanks so much for joining us. It's been uh, really fun talking to you. Why don't you tell us again um, the best ways to get hold of you if, if someone wants to look you up? Sure. Well, uh, Google's a great starting point. Uh, uh, just Google Roger Dooley and you'll find most of my stuff. Uh, the best jumping off point uh, is rogerdooley.com, where I've got links to my various uh, blogs and uh, social uh, links. On Twitter, which is probably my social medium of choice, uh, I am at Roger Dooley. Okay. Hey, uh, maybe we'll see you on one of those United flights. <laughs> yeah, may maybe. Uh, I'll be the one uh, trying to hang out of the seats as they're pulling me off by my feet. <laughs> uh, I hope not. All right. Uh, okay. Thanks very much, Roger. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you, Susan. Thank you, Guthrie. Bye-bye now.